Take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Lord willing, this morning we're going to close out this section of the letter where Paul is urging the Corinthian church to complete their pledge to give a generous love offering to the poor saints in Jerusalem. That means we're going to complete chapter 9. So let's begin reading in verse 6. The inspired words of God say this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. So in this section, chapters 8 and 9, where Paul is addressing this pledge that they had made to, to give a monetary gift to the saints in Jerusalem, Paul has offered them examples of giving. He began by offering them the example of the poor churches in Macedonia that gave above their means. But he also offered them the greatest Example of sacrificial giving in the history of creation. The example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul has also arranged for Titus and two unnamed brothers to accompany Titus to Corinth to go ahead and get this collection ready before Paul goes there. And he's given a couple of examples for this. First, almost unbelievingly, some of the saints in Corinth seem to have bought into the lie that Paul was skimming off the top of the collection, patting his own pocket. That's so difficult to believe because Paul has been the instrument God used to actually reach these people with the gospel. And he spent better than a year and a half essentially being the de facto pastor of the church. I think that at the very least, exposes an immaturity of these saints in Corinth. And certainly, the sinful attitude of saved people at times. We all 
are tempted to be this way, but we need to be better. The second reason for sending this group beforehand, though, was because some brothers from Macedonia were likely to accompany Paul when he finally came to Corinth later on. And it would be quite humiliating for them to arrive without this collection having been completed, especially since Paul had used them, the Corinthian saints, as an example of Christian giving to the Macedonian believers, who, by the way, had completed their collection. It would not only embarrass the Corinthian saints, but it would embarrass Paul as well, because it would look like he had perhaps made something up that did not actually happen. Lastly, in the section we looked at last week, Paul warns them about being greedy with their own money, deciding to hold tight to their savings rather than contributing to the needs of the poor saints in Jerusalem. On the contrary, there in verse 5, Paul says that their offering should be a willing gift. That idea of a willing gift feeds right into this text that we just read, the one that I hope that we will be able to work through this morning. The title of my sermon is The Attitude of Giving. The Attitude of Giving. In this text, Paul really digs at the heart of Christian giving, having an an attitude of gratitude. And really, this, this is true whether we're speaking of giving to the local church or we're talking about generously giving to those in need, other brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul begins here in verse 6. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Okay, before we even really get started in the exposition of the passage, I want to deal with something that needs to be dealt with lest there be confusion as we work through this text. This verse has been ripped, kicking, and screaming out of context in the charismatic world. Specifically in churches and ministries promoting the prosperity gospel. It usually goes like this. God promises to return to you every dollar that you give to our ministry and some if you will just be faithful. False teachers often promise people a a tenfold return for their investment in their ministry. Prosperity preachers like Kenneth Copeland or Creflo Dollar or Paula White or Joyce Meyer or Benny Hinn. That's just a few of the more popular names out there. These people have gotten filthy rich off the backs of poor people Poor people who are led to believe that God will bring them out of their poverty if they'll just sacrificially sacrificially give to the ministry of these false teachers. And yet, you know, studies have actually been done that prove that is not what happens. The vast majority of believers in the prosperity gospel program remain in abject poverty and are left feeling spiritually defeated at the end of the day. Listen, this... This verse is absolutely not teaching that there is some guarantee of a big bank account if you just give sacrificially to Christian ministries. It's not. And just so we are clear, that idea 
The prosperity gospel. That takes a sin, greed, covetousness, and polishes it up so that it looks godly. Because look, there is no way Paul is defending covetousness as a godly trait. Money as something that ought to be sought at all costs. Look, Paul is very clear in his letter to young Timothy. He says this, quote, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. End quote. There's no way. The text before us is promoting that which Paul says has destroyed the faith of many over in 1 Timothy chapter 6. No way. That's not the teaching of Paul here. Well, so how do we know this verse is not teaching a guaranteed re- return on spiritual seed money? How do we know? It's not hard, actually. First of all, who was this collection being collected for. This was for the poor saints in Jerusalem. People who had quite literally given everything that they had away so that everyone in the Christian community there in Jerusalem was helped. Luke writes in Acts 4, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as as any had need. Look, how much more sacrificially can you be than selling literally everything you have to help your brothers and sisters in Christ? And yet, they're the very ones being helped in this collection. Just knowing that is enough to undermine the idea that this is talking about spiritual seed money and a guaranteed return on sacrificial giving. Of course, the prosperity gospel types don't recognize that simple fact because they, like so many today, are nothing more than proof texters. They know nothing about keeping a verse or a passage in context. Secondly, Paul has already offered the example of the churches in Macedonia helping in this effort. Saints who were dirt poor, according to what Paul had written. They did not give in order to get. That is not what's going on. No, they gave, Paul says, because they gave themselves first to the Lord. And so their extreme poverty had overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates that those saints who were poor and gave sacrificially ended up rich as a result. There's nothing in Scripture that would suggest that. Thirdly, and this brings us to the exposition of the passage, the very teaching of this text verifies that Paul is not talking about a guarantee of return. Like like sacrificial giving is just an investment, like investing in... Vanguard 401k money, right? Now look, right here in verse 6, Paul offers a well-known proverb. 
we might say, a truism to make his point. Now, Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs are, well, Proverbs. <laughs> they're, they're things that are generally true. A proverb is actually designed as, quote, a short, pithy saying in general use stating a general truth or a piece of advice, end quote. In other words, a proverb expresses something that is generally true, but it's not a guarantee. It's obvious from this text. Look, just look what Paul does here. He uses an agricultural illustration. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now some of you have planted crops and I assume you don't take one corn seed and put it in the middle of the field hoping that the entire acre will become a corn field. I, I wouldn't think that's the way that, that you did. No, you likely sow very bountifully knowing that's the best chance to have a good crop. All right, that's just a general truth. But does that happen every year without exception in the exact same way? No, of course not. Harvests vary. We might have a lack of rain one year. We might have too much rain one year. You could have a fire. Your crops could be destroyed by insects or animals. Your seed could just be bad seed. I mean, there's a number of reasons why that may not happen. All that said, though, generally speaking, if a, farmer, if a farmer sows sparingly, he will also reap sparingly. If a farmer sows bountifully, he will also reap bountifully. This is a truism. It's a, it's a proverb. That's how things normally work out. And so Paul uses that example to express our sowing into our faith. And specifically, he's addressing sacrificial giving here. Speaking to these affluent Corinthians, Paul essentially says something like this. Look, God has blessed you with the ability to help others, and He will continue to do so if you are good stewards of your money, specifically if you are generous with your money. Gary Miller writes, quote, Our giving demonstrates that we believe the gospel and trust God to do us good in riches or poverty. End quote. Remember, the Macedonians had given generously, but they were poor. They still trusted God. That's the point here. If we give generously, God will return good to us. But this does not always mean in material wealth. That's where we read that into the text. Again, just ask the poor saints in Jerusalem who had given all they had to their brothers or sisters in Christ. Did that return to them wealth? No, actually they became poor. And just for the record, though we don't often think about it this way, the inner peace of faithfully serving God, being obedient, being generous, is worth far more than a large bank account. Okay, with that out of the way, let's just move on through this passage. Verse 7, Paul, Paul then says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And you may recall, we've talked about this a number of times, 
these saints had decided to give to this relief effort. And so Paul is here because they had procrastinated up to this point. Paul is here once again calling on them to finish what they had begun. Complete what you have pledged. Give what you have decided in your heart. Not reluctantly and not under compulsion. They were to give, but they were to give freely of their own accord. No one forced them to pledge this money, but now they have pledged it. And now they should follow through. And Paul offers a biblical motivation to do so. For God loves a cheerful giver. There's actually a reference to Proverbs 22.8. God blesses a cheerful and generous man. But that's a quote from the Septuagint, not from the Hebrew Masoretic text. Interestingly, if you turn to Proverbs 22.8, no need to. You're not going to find this. It's not there in your English translations because our English translations are based on the Hebrew Masoretic text. And Paul is here quoting from the Greek Septuagint in order to quote this verse. I share that with you merely to say Paul apparently wasn't nearly as worried about an occasional textual variant as so many people are today. He actually is willing to quote a variant from the Septuagint to make his point. Anyway, God loves a cheerful giver because it is a reflection of God's character. God is cheerful in blessing you and me. That's what Paul means. And so we, as His children, should reflect His attitude in giving. We should give Cheerfully. By the way, the Greek word here rendered cheerful is hilarion. You may hear our, or hilarion, excuse me, you may hear our, our English word hilarious in that. It, it, it literally, it, it's an idea of being a hilarious giver, not a funny giver. That's not the idea, but someone who is bubbling over with joy to help other people. That's what Paul is calling them to do, and that's what he calls us to do. Giving, even sacrificially, to another believer should not feel like paying taxes. Not if we love our neighbor, and certainly not if we love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I have literally, with my own ears, heard someone say, Todd, I can't give cheerfully, so I don't believe that I should give at all. Listen, if you have convinced yourself of that, let me just say, you have twisted the Bible in order to satisfy your own greedy heart. Again, the attitude of giving in a redeemed child of God should reflect the character of our Heavenly Father who is a cheerful giver. Fulfill your pledge, do it cheerfully, and you will rightly represent the very God that you claim to serve to the community around us. That's Paul's instruction to them, but by extension, that's Paul's instruction to us as well. He says, and God is able. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work or all good works. Really, Paul is using a word play here. You notice the, 
the word all. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in all good works. You think he's making a point by the repetitive use of the word all there? I think he is. Give sacrificially because God is sovereign over all your stuff. In other words, God is able to make all grace abound to you because He is God. When you choose to live as God would have you to, it will be returned to you in some way. The problem with us is when we read this, we immediately think it means money. If I give to people in need, God's going to give me more money back. As I said earlier, that's certainly what the prosperity preachers want you to read here, as long as you give sacrificially to them, of course. But Paul is actually quite clear in what he means here. Notice, God gives us what we need in order to abound in every good work. That's the point. When we properly utilize the resources God has given us, He will give us other avenues to abound in every good work. That may mean He gives you more money. Sure, it may. But if it does, it's not to pad your pocketbook. It's not just so you have a bigger bank account you can brag about. But it may not refer to money at all. It may simply mean God, if you're faithful in this way, will give you other ways to serve God, other opportunities to abound in every good work. But this giving of God is so you can serve Him. That much is crystal clear. Then he quotes Psalm 112.9. In verse 9, here, as it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now, if you're not careful, you will read this wrongly. Again, quoting Psalm 112.9, the He in that psalm, though it sounds like it refers to God just from the quote here, it does not. God certainly has distributed freely. I will give you that. And we as children of God, are recipients of that free distribution that God has given. But in Psalm 112, the he here refers to the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. Psalm 112 declares that such a man is blessed or or happy. And one of the attributes of this happy man who fears the Lord, one of his character traits is that he is generous with his money that God has blessed him with. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. And such generosity by that man who fears the Lord, such generosity will merit eternal rewards. His righteousness endures forever or perhaps As Moyer Hubbard says, his righteousness, his act of generosity produces an enduring legacy. This text does not mean we earn righteousness through generosity. But it does mean that generosity should flow from a redeemed heart. It does mean that. 
Paul goes on to say in verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Look, I think it's clear enough. God supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. By the way, Paul... Paul was probably alluding to Isaiah 55.10 here. It reads almost word for word exactly the same way. Paul explains here that God will supply and multiply their seed for sowing and increase the harvest if they are faithful stewards of what God has already given to them. Is this talking about money? Or or perhaps I should say, is this talking merely about money? Well, certainly they were to fulfill their monetary pledge to the saints in Jerusalem. So there is a sense in which Paul is specifically talking to them about money. And as a result, if they are faithful, God may increase their income. He can do so and has done so many times. But I don't think that's the primary point here. Notice, it's the harvest of their righteousness that will be increased. That's the point. They're, as he said in the previous verse, they're good works for God. They're opportunities to serve God that will be increased. Look, if we serve God faithfully in what He's given us now, God will open other doors, other avenues in which we can serve Him. William Tyndale was a man who utilized the abilities that God has given him. You may recall William Tyndale translated the Word of God from the original Greek and Hebrew into English. In fact, that man sacrificed most everything so that he could get the English Bible into the hands of the common English speaker at a time when that was illegal. Well, finally, William Tyndale paid the ultimate price for his service to God. He was put to death by the state for the violation of translating the Bible into English. His martyrdom was the avenue of service God opened to him for his faithfulness. And he will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ for his martyrdom. Nevertheless, the fruits of his labor continue today. The seeds he sowed are still producing a harvest. Even as you hold a copy of the English Bible in your laps here this morning, the harvest of William Tyndale's work continues to go forward. Thank God for the faithfulness of William Tyndale. And thank God for God's gifting him with the linguistic abilities that are far beyond most anybody in this room. But he took what God had given him and he faithfully sowed it. Rather than getting rich though, he ultimately paid the price of martyrdom. How does that fit here? Because God is not guaranteeing riches to His people, but opportunities to serve Him. Look, Paul is not endorsing some sort of blank check 
for God increasing your bank account just so long as you're generous with what you have. He may do that. He can. And He has done so before. He may continue to give you the opportunity to help others through monetary generosity. And if He does, praise the Lord, don't miss the opportunity. Be a good steward of your finances. Be a generous giver. But God may create other avenues of service, much like He did in the case of William Tyndale, when He paid the ultimate price. The promise here, though, is not that these saints would be rich, but that they would be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. This may include money, but every way certainly is more broad than financial promises. And for the record, if, if God opens avenues for us to increase our income, if He clears a path for generous service, it's not so we can just kick back and live comfortably. No, it's so that our service will produce thanksgiving to God. It says so right here in the text. That is what was going to happen through this offering to the poor saints in Jerusalem. It was going to increase thanksgiving to God. He, Paul says so in the next verse, verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. The, the ministry of this service clearly refers to the offering that was being given to the poor saints in Jerusalem. The ministry of this service. It is supplying the needs of the saints. But it is not only supplying the needs of the saints. The greater purpose of this love offering is that it would bring glory to God, or as Paul puts it here, thanksgivings to God. You know, we just celebrated Thanksgiving this past week. Hopefully, taking time to thank God for the many blessings that He has given us in our lives. But, let me ask you this. Has, has your service to God, specifically your treatment of your fellow man, has it caused other people to overflow in many thanksgivings to God? What you've done... Like, did, it, did anybody on Thanksgiving thank God for you? Because that's what Paul says was going to happen if they completed their service here. That the saints in Jerusalem would overflow in thanksgiving to God for the work of the Corinthian believers. Or do people just hate to see you coming? The Christian people don't need to walk around like we were baptized in vinegar. This is something we need to think about. On the authority of this text, something we need to consider is whether we live lives of which people can be thankful for our actions. Paul is telling these saints that if they do what they've been enabled to do, if they follow through with their pledge to help the needy Jewish believers, that would produce thanksgivings to God. He says that here. Guys, that ought to be our goal in our service to God, in, in our Christian works. Our fruit, we hope, 
would cause people to thank God for His goodness in working through us. That's our hope. Not so we're put up on a pedestal, but so that God is. Verse 13 continues. He says, By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. In other words, when the Jerusalem church receives the monetary aid from the Gentiles, they will glorify God because of the Gentiles and because of the Gentile submission that comes from their confession of the gospel. Let me see if I can do better with that. Let me see if I can make that more clear. There was in the early churches a bit of suspicion on the part of the Jews towards believing Gentiles. We're currently working through the book of Acts. We have not yet got the full picture of this yet, but we will. We will. We did, however, see in Acts 8 when God saves a number of Samaritans through Philip's ministry that the apostles caught wind of it and sent Peter and John to check on things. Let's see what's going on over there. We'll see the same questions when Gentiles are converted in the house of Cornelius and ultimately we will see major schisms develop between Jew and Gentile which will bring about the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. But I can't preach Acts this morning. We're going to learn though in the book of Acts there is a a divide early on between believing Jews and believing Gentiles. But I mean, we should should remember Acts is is a transition period Questions are being asked. Questions are being answered. I mean, is God actually now going to work through the Gentiles? I mean, that has to be something that they they asked. Did did Gentiles need to be circumcised? Did, Did Gentiles need to keep the old covenant law? And if not, what do they need to do? We're going to deal with all of this. But the point is, there is this... There is this divide between Jews and Gentiles, not to mention an already racial division that existed there between them. Well, what Paul is saying here in verses 13 and 14 is that this love offering, this gift that they had pledged, may at least cause the Jewish believers to recognize that the profession of faith by the Gentiles is genuine. They really do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why they are giving this money. Knowing that then, recognizing the genuine confession of faith by the Gentiles, the Jews would, Paul says, long for the Gentiles and pray for the Gentiles because of the surpassing grace of God upon them. He hoped that the divide would at least to some degree be bridged through this. Paul saw this relief effort then as supplying the needs of the saints, but not only supplying the needs of the saints. This this good deed on the part of the Gentiles would impact in a much broader way. Look, our actions 
often have widespread effects, far more widespread than we anticipate. The Gentiles would at least at that time supply the monetary needs of the Jews, and then the Jews in turn would pray for the Gentiles. Which, by the way, we should not diminish the importance of someone praying for us. Well, Paul ends this section with quite this statement. It's as though Paul cannot hold this in. It's like in Ephesians 2 when Paul seems to not be able to hold in. By grace you have been saved. But here he says, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. God has been generous. He has given us a willing gift. Not reluctantly. Not under compulsion. God has cheerfully given us a gift. In fact, God is the best gift giver that has ever been. James writes, quote, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. End quote. But God has not held back. Paul says God has given us an inexpressible Gift, or we might say an indescribable gift, or we could render this a gift too wonderful for words. Interestingly, if you like thought provoking information, the Greek word here translated inexpressible in the SV or indescribable in some other translations is a word not found in any other Greek literature that we've ever dug up. It appears that Paul invented this word here just to write it in this context. Just to describe how unfathomable God's goodness is to us. And so Paul just makes a word up because it's indescribable. It's beyond words, so he makes up a word. I thought that was interesting at least. Without a doubt, God's primary gift to us is Jesus. And salvation through Him and His work at Calvary. This, by the way, has already been mentioned in this section. Back in chapter 8, verse 9, you probably recall, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. And I would just remind you, He is not talking about money in the bank. He's talking about spiritual riches. The purpose of Paul mentioning God's inexpressible gift here and mentioning the work of our Lord Jesus Christ back in chapter 8 verse 9 is for the same purpose. We as God's children with varying opportunities to serve Him need to be generous towards others because we then express the character of the God we serve to others. He's been good to us, so we're good to others. We need to strive to serve our fellow man in just such a way that others see our lives as a reason to offer thanksgivings to God. In a similar vein, 
that we thank God for the goodness He has given us through His Son in the Gospel. Well, you don't find out in 2 Corinthians, but for what it's worth, Paul's encouragement for them to complete their pledge did seem to take root. In the book of Romans, in chapter 15, Paul writes, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, which would have included Corinth, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. And indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be a service to them in material blessings. Everything Paul talked about in this section, he essentially brings to a head right there in Romans 15, verses 25 through 27. The question though for us is, are we willing to follow their example? This is almost chiding to continue to tell you that the Bible tells you you ought to be generous. Like I'm probably part of you, like me, is like, man, I can't wait to talk about false teachers. Yet I have to lay down at night and say, God, help me to be generous the way I'm telling other people to be generous. Are we willing to be generous to those around us, specifically our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we see occasions where we can be of help and opportunity to other people in the name of our Heavenly Father? John MacArthur writes of this collection, quote, It was not primarily a social program, but a spiritual service to God, end quote. I think that's where we... Miss it. We think anything we give people is just our grace to them, where Paul is saying, no, this is part of your service to God. Guys, look, if God has blessed you financially, He's done it on purpose. He is sovereign. And He has done so with the intent that you would serve Him with what He has given to you. You know, we tend to think that our times of struggling to serve God come during tough times, times of need, times when our financial portfolio isn't quite what we would like it to be. Those are the times when we're tested by God, we think. And and I'm not saying they aren't. But I thought David Garland had a very interesting point in his commentary on 2 Corinthians. Here's what he says, quote, God does not always test us through affliction, Some of the most difficult tests come when we must prove ourselves obedient to God in times of relative prosperity. End quote. I think our society would be offered as proof enough that Brother Garland is on to something. We've had it easy and we've not done very good with it. Saints, listen, let us look for opportunities to give. If not money... Let us give of ourselves. I mean, look, we live in a society where there is far more help for the poor than there was in the first century. Today, we may need to do the more difficult thing and give ourselves and our time to serving others. Perhaps the widow doesn't need your money, but she needs her gutters cleaned out. Be willing to give of yourself. And don't wait... Once you see a problem, hoping 
the little old widow will hire somebody. You know? Procrastination often causes us not to serve in the ways we've been given opportunity to. That is precisely what was going on in Corinth. They'd been given an opportunity and they had procrastinated and now Paul is having to write them two chapters saying, get back on it. Do what you have promised. You know, we need to be the reason someone offers thanksgivings to God. Again, I said earlier, our actions have consequences. Now let me close by reminding you this text is not talking about sowing spiritual seed money so that you can then reap monetary benefits and become rich. No, this passage is not about that. It is about an attitude of giving. An attitude that trusts God for your well-being when you give generously to other people of your substance. In fact, in our cases, at least most of us, we could probably say of our abundance. Let us not be so intent on opposing prosperity preachers, which we absolutely should do because that whole system is blasphemous. But let us not be so focused on opposing them that we miss the point of the text. A stingy Christian is an oxymoron. We need to have a biblical attitude of giving so that we display the character of our Heavenly Father to those that we come in contact with. May the Lord add His blessings to His Word. Stand with me, if you will.